Sometimes the stories that are the most haunting are the ones that forever remain a mystery. They make headlines, spend weeks as a lead story on the evening news, and are splashed across magazine covers. But then, just like that, they're over. Now, sometimes they just fade away out of the spotlight. Other times, they're solved. A trial is held, a ruling is made. But the stories that seem to haunt us for years are the ones where doubt about what really happened remains long after the case is closed. What is being conveyed, what we're getting about the case just does not sound right. You just can't wrap your head around it. Maybe you know why, maybe you don't. Maybe you feel a bond with the victim on some level. Maybe you have a son or a daughter much like them, or maybe you think, but for the grace of God, go I. But for whatever reason, something is just, well, unsettling. It is just unsettling. These are the stories that keep us up at night, the stories that make us obsess over documentaries and true crime series. These are the stories where there are so many unanswered questions, we hit the internet, joining chat rooms and reddits, and making us want to be armchair detectives. A case where the resolution, or lack thereof, leaves you hungry for the truth, for facts. But the only person who knows for certain what really happened, the only person who knows the truth, tragically is dead and buried. Buried along with their secrets. This is one of those stories that has kept millions of people up at night. The old saying goes, dead men tell no tales. And in this instance, neither does a dead woman. And that's what we know for sure. A woman is dead. Not much else is for sure. In 2011, a beautiful young brunette is found dead, hanging from the balcony of her older boyfriend's breathtaking multi-million dollar mansion. Her body is nude. Her hands and feet are bound, her hands tied tightly behind her back, and her mouth is gagged with a blue t-shirt. Now think about that for a second because all of that's going to mean something. It's going to mean a lot as we move forward. Her body is nude, her hands and feet are bound, her hands are bound behind her back, and she's gagged. Why do you gag people? Well, you gag them to keep them quiet. Despite strange and suspicious circumstances, police rule her death a suicide. But did something much more sinister occur behind these mansion walls? When this woman was alive, she had the perfect shiny brown hair, the perfect smile, the perfect body, and seemingly a perfect life. So why would she kill herself? Was there a secret darkness? Was this really a suicide? Or was there a chance that this was a murder? A perfect murder. Claire on emergency, what are you reporting? Yeah, uh, I, I got a girl hung herself. Sir, is she yeah. still alive? I don't know. 32-year-old Rebecca Zahal was found hanging nude and bound from a balcony in the mansion's courtyard. The house belongs to Jonah Shacknai, an Arizona pharmaceutical tycoon. Our office concluded that the cause of death was hanging and the manner of death was suicide. The Zahal family does not believe that she committed suicide. As soon as I found out that she was naked and she was bound, it confirmed my fear that she did not commit suicide. She was murdered. They did not give my sister a fair investigation. She had dirty feet. There's no footprints on the carpet from dirty feet. There's a chair knocked over. They didn't look at a pair of women's underwear in a garbage can in the guest house. They didn't look at black gloves at the scene. How does she tie her hands behind her back with that elaborate nodding? We said this would take a Cirque du Soleil contortionist artist to do this. Questions remained. Why? And more importantly, how could someone bind their own wrist together tightly behind their own back using intricate knots before jumping to their death out of a mansion window. And what did a cryptic message, quote, she saved him, can you save her? Close quotes. Painted in menacing black letters and scrawled on the bedroom door, what could it mean and who wrote it? Now, having been trained as a psychologist, the most glaring red flag of all is that this method of suicide is really, really rare for women. Her naked body was on display, trussed up and gagged outside on the front of the house. So very public. Women just don't usually do that. 
and they don't usually choose hanging as a method of suicide. It's much more common for women to overdose on drugs or slit their wrist, usually in a warm tub of water, something where it's less traumatic, more comfortable. As someone who is trained not just as a psychologist but as a forensic psychologist and worked to help profile criminals in numerous cases over 40 years, I have to tell you, this just screams like a crime committed by someone with hatred, someone who wanted vengeance, someone who wanted to shame this woman, but why? What could be the motive? Well, in the days before this woman's death, another horrifying event occurred inside that very same mansion. What are the odds? And that event could answer the question about why she would take her life. A tragic accident that could have left plenty of people angry enough, heartbroken enough, devastated enough to lash out in rage, revenge, retribution, maybe even to kill. So something happened that could have motivated her, could have motivated others. This series is Mansion of Secrets, The Mysterious Death of Rebecca Zahal. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. This story begins in San Diego, California, at 1043 Ocean Boulevard. The historic Spreckles Mansion sits just steps away from the sparkling Pacific Ocean, surrounded by sweeping views and lush manicured lawns. The $17 million Spanish Revival Estate is known as one of the most beautiful properties in America. In the 1920s, dignitaries and royalty flocked to stay in the lavish guest house. The house was built in 1908 by the rich heir to a sugar company, who also owned the storied Hotel Del Coronado, which sat just a stone's throw away by the ocean's edge. The famed hotel was at one time the largest resort in the world, referred to those in the know as just the Dell. It was the epitome of glamour and riches. It was where celebrities rubbed elbows and sipped cocktails by the water. It was the sun-drenched location where they shot the Marilyn Monroe movie, Some Like It Hot. The Dell became so legendary that it sparked countless tales of ghosts and hauntings. Little did anyone know that one day, the beautiful family home next door would become more notorious than the iconic hotel. And the story of what happened there would be far more chilling than any story about ghosts haunting the hotel's halls. Behind this beachfront mansion's beautiful facade lies a definite foreboding darkness. This house was the location of not one, but two grisly and mysterious deaths, just days apart, both dying way before their time, both without warning or red flags to signal what was coming. Two people died that just simply weren't on the road to tragedy. Now, as someone who has analyzed many criminals and crime scenes and countless deaths where the person died from a broad array of causes, I have learned that people, witnesses, and investigators, even the most experienced and well-intended, begin to build biases and see the evidence through filters tainted by developing beliefs. Now, this is not a sinister phenomenon. It is just human nature. How many times have you stared at a problem hours on end, looking for the solution, looking for what's wrong, only to have a fresh set of eyes walk right in and spot something material, something critical, in just a matter of minutes? You've stared at it forever. They walk in and go, oh, there it is. As we lay out the story of these two deaths, I want you and I to go through all of the relevant facts, evidence, and testimony, and I want you to be that fresh set of eyes on behalf of Rebecca Zahal. She and her lovely family, as well as her former devoted boyfriend, deserve no less. As we progress, please, I want to hear from you. You are my fresh set of eyes and ears. I want you to think like a criminal profiler. 
they take the evidence and first determine, was a crime committed? They look at it from every angle to determine if a crime was committed, if what they are looking at is not an accident or a suicide or an act of God, but an actual crime, an act of malice. And if so, what kind of person would commit that type of crime? What can a body and the evidence surrounding it tell you? What can it tell you about its killer if there was one? Was he or she right-handed or left-handed? What does it tell you about his or her possible motive? Was there anger or passion? I want to figuratively deputize you to help me solve this tragic puzzle. I've been involved in this case for a long time. I've talked to a lot of the key players here. I've studied this evidence. I've talked to experts. Maybe you're going to see something. Maybe you're going to hear something. And you're going to send me a message that tells me something I need to see that I've been staring at but hasn't jumped out at me. So when I say I want to hear from you, I really mean that. Because here's the question. Was this, in fact, a heartbreaking suicide as it has been ruled? Or was there foul play? Now think about what you know so far. If there was a crime, if there was a murder, think about what that person had to do to get this healthy young woman naked, hands bound behind her back, gagged, noose around her neck, and thrown over the railing of a balcony. We're talking about a sick, twisted, cold-blooded killer here. We're not talking about somebody that just on impulse pulled a trigger or slashed with a knife. We're talking about someone that methodically, in a multi-step process, staged a suicide scene. How did they do that? How did they incapacitate this woman if they did that? And people often ask me, Dr. Phil, who does that kind of thing? And as I said, when people ask me that question, it is not rhetorical. When people ask me that question, they really want to know who does that kind of thing. What kind of personality, what kind of pain, what kind of anger and rage drives somebody to do that? They want to know so they can spot this in their own lives. And before we're done, I intend to answer that question. Now, before any mystery occurs, there is always a first link in the chain, a trigger or a spark, if you will, that ignites and tumbles the entire house of cards. The spark in this case seems to have ignited two days before Rebecca Zahau's death inside the Spreckles Mansion on a beautiful Southern California day. 32-year-old Rebecca seems to have it all. She's an immigrant from Burma. She's young, beautiful, and living a life of privilege. And let me tell you, it is a far cry from how she grew up, as one of six children reportedly in a home that didn't even have running water. Now think about the contrast. You go from a house in Burma that doesn't even have indoor plumbing to living in one of the most famous landmark mansions in America. Huge step up. Now, after a tumultuous first marriage, Rebecca believes she has finally met her perfect match, a millionaire pharmaceutical tycoon from Arizona named Jonah Shacknai. When I describe him that way, your first flash in your mind might be, oh, she hit the jackpot. Is this a gold digger situation? But everybody involved says they had a real relationship. These two were very close. Now, even though the powerful CEO had been married two times before and at age 54 was nearly twice Rebecca's age, they really did share common interest and enjoyed each other's company. Jonah says they had a strong connection from their very first date. We kind of told one another our live stories. Rebecca had a, a complicated and evolved life story, and she shared that with me. We had a great deal in common. We were both fitness enthusiasts. We liked being outdoors. I think we both had a a pretty clean lifestyle. Neither of us drank or used drugs recreationally. We're just kind of fit people. So there there was a significant compatibility on many levels. Rebecca and I were very close. Um, I'm confident that we loved one another. From there, their relationship only grew. Rebecca's brother-in-law, Doug, said they were a match made in heaven. Becky said that Jonah was the love of her life. She had never met anybody that made her feel so good about herself. They had so much in common as far as uh, their workout regimen, their taste in food. Rebecca and Jonah had been dating for about two years, and Rebecca was eager to move things along and get more serious. I uh, had taken uh, my three kids at the time to to see my parents uh, in New York, and... uh, 
Rebecca was staying at the house uh, while we were gone, and when we returned, she had moved uh, a lot of her things in, family pictures, uh, clothes, and uh, we, we hadn't quite discussed it first, so it caused uh, definitely a little bit of an issue, particularly with one of my children. Eventually, Jonah agreed Rebecca was right. It was time to take the next step. Rebecca moved into his impressive Coronado estate, a beachfront property he had bought as a vacation home to beat the Phoenix summer heat. That vacation home was the Spreckles Mansion. Ironically, in what would be a chilling twist, Jonah's ex-wife, Dina Shackney, says they chose to buy the home in Coronado because nothing bad ever happens in Coronado. They had no idea the horror that was to come. Jonah gives his all to his relationship with Rebecca. He lets her get in her element. She loved to organize, and he allows her to rearrange everything to make his home feel like her own. He hired an immigration lawyer to help Rebecca's younger siblings come to the United States. And he also spent time trying to facilitate a relationship between Rebecca and his two older children, who were understandably wary of their rich dad's new, young, and pretty girlfriend. Now, you have to remember, this isn't just some random wealthy guy. We're talking someone who was famous in the financial world, a man whose company was written about in money magazines and covered on national news. This guy sold his company in 2012 for $2.6 billion, billion with a B. His company was one that brought what some call the fountain of youth onto the market, the injectable filler Restylane. Now, I don't know how much you know about this kind of thing, but I know it is shot into the faces of a lot of the pretty people in Hollywood. It supposedly keeps your face looking plump and youthful. But despite Jonah's extreme wealth, Rebecca's family said her life with Jonah wasn't just all mansions, jet-setting, and champagne. They say Rebecca gave up almost everything in her life, including her career as an ophthalmologist technician, to make the relationship with Jonah work. Now, that may not sound like much of a sacrifice, but it was her livelihood. It was her independence. That was the sacrifice. It isn't that she couldn't replace that if she had to. It was that she was taking herself out of the workforce, giving up her independence, and becoming completely dependent on him. Now, when she did, she too was all in. She also made a huge effort to build a close relationship with Jonah's youngest son, six-year-old Max. Now, let's talk about Max for a minute. Max was an adorable little boy with floppy brown hair and a huge smile that just took over his face. In photos, you can see he just had one of those grins that seemed to go all the way up to his eyes. And they just had that sparkle. Those eyes just sparkled when he smiled. He was one of those children where anyone who saw him would just automatically say, damn, that's a cute kid. In an interview with KTAR News, 92.3 FM in Phoenix, Arizona, his mother, Dina, describes him as a child with a zest for life. Max was a compelling little boy, an amazing boy, a spirited boy, a thoughtful boy, a smart boy, a loving boy. By 2011, Rebecca had spent plenty of time with Max and was, of course, trusted to keep an eye on him. It wasn't unusual or out of the ordinary for her to watch Max if his dad had a quick errand to run or something he needed to do. Max lived there part-time. Rebecca lived there full-time. They naturally formed a parent-child type relationship. Monday, July 11, 2011, was just one of those days. Rebecca and her 13-year-old sister, Zena, were home at the mansion, and Rebecca was left in charge of Max while Jonah swung by their local gym for a quick workout. They had a nice afternoon planned ahead. Jonah and Rebecca were going to take Max and her younger sister to the zoo. But, in an instant, what was supposed to be a fun-filled day turned into every parent's worst nightmare. Rebecca claims her younger sister was in the shower and she was in the bathroom, that she had turned away for just one moment, one second, when tragedy struck. Their big grand house also had a big grand staircase. At the top, a second-story landing with a thin white banister overlooked the floor far below. When Rebecca came out of the bathroom, Max, the little boy who was so full of life, the boy known for zooming around on his Razor scooter and chasing his dog aptly named Ocean was lying lifeless at the bottom. 
It appeared Max had tumbled off the second story landing, reaching for anything to grasp onto as he fell. The impressive crystal chandelier that hung above the foyer lay shattered on the floor. Zena says she got out of the shower and heard her older sister's panic screams. She says she ran to the landing and saw Rebecca cradling a lifeless Max in her arms. As Rebecca gave the little boy CPR, Zena searched for Rebecca's cell phone and called 911. She is frantic and confuses the operator. They're having a hard time figuring out who has fallen and exactly what has happened. The first officer to arrive on the scene claims Rebecca told him that when she first found Max at the bottom of the stairs, he was conscious, and she said he uttered one final word, Ocean, the name of his beloved dog. Another officer claims he overheard Rebecca tell her sister, Dina is going to kill me. Remember, Dina is Max's biological mother. Jonah was still at the gym when he got the call, the call that would change his life forever. The call came from Rebecca's cell, but when he picked it up, she didn't speak. All he heard was chaos, screaming, and pure panic. He knew immediately something was terribly wrong. It was a moment he describes as an unimaginable depth of pain. If you listen carefully, you can hear that, despite his best efforts, he can barely choke back his emotions when he testifies about coming home and seeing his son near death. It was uh, Rebecca's uh, phone, and there was no voice, just a lot of commotion uh, going on in the background. I knew something was wrong, so I ran immediately back to the house. Uh, I saw a fire truck, number of police cars, and an ambulance. I saw my son Max uh, laying on the ground uh, near the front door, being attended by some paramedics. A police detective was there, and he followed the ambulance uh, with me in the car to the Coronado uh, Sharp Hospital. He wasn't breathing on his own. He was taken in there, and uh, the physicians and staff uh, desperately tried to resuscitate him. They finally got a pulse, a heartbeat, and he was immediately taken for a CT scan uh, at that hospital. I, I was in the room for the CT scan, and they obviously understood the seriousness of his condition, and they called the Grady Children's Hospital and they sent a team down that was specializing in trauma uh, to kind of take over the case. You know, I'm knowledgeable enough medically to understand from the beginning that his condition was very serious. He wasn't breathing. When we uh, first got a, a consultation with the, with the physicians at Rady's that Monday night, uh, they basically confirmed that Max's condition was very serious, but that with brain injuries, uh, you don't know exactly what's going to happen, that they were going to do their best to stabilize him. Uh, they were going to induce something called a, a medically induced coma, uh, just to keep his body with as little stress as possible and just kind of wait and see what happens. But they were certainly clear that this was a, a very grave injury. After Max's accident, it is a hellish few days for his family and for Rebecca. They are waiting for news, any news, good or bad at this point. Doctors don't know really the full extent of Max's injuries. Max was in a medically induced coma, and sometimes there's so little known about brain injuries. They can really go either way. What was known is that Max had brain damage as a result of his injuries. A medical examiner said Max fractured several facial bones and suffered a severe injury to his spinal cord. The injury to his spine then interfered with his heart rate and breathing. Now, I said you don't always know a lot with brain injuries. The problem with closed head injuries is despite all of our current technology, x-rays, CT scans, MRIs, we still do not have the ability to create perfectly accurate images of brain structures and how they may have changed with trauma. Now, in addition to physical insult, there are two other factors, at least, that can become outcome determinative. First, the disruption of neurotransmitters and electrical activity can be terribly disrupted. Also, interrupted blood flow and therefore oxygen can create serious tissue damage. And the margins, the room inside the intracranial space, especially with a child, is so slight, so little, that any swelling can create so much pressure that it can be fatal. You add all of these factors together in one tragic moment in time and the chances of survival can become really infinitesimal. 
Now, he was put in a medically induced coma or a barbiturate coma. They do this because it reduces the metabolic rate of the brain, and that causes the vessels to narrow, which reduces space, which reduces pressure. This is a controversial procedure, but it is commonly done to reduce intracranial pressure because it reduces oxygen demand. It keeps the patient still and quiet. So they were doing everything. They didn't know exactly what was going on, but they knew it was very serious. Nevertheless, as any loved ones would, Max's family is still holding on to hope against hope, just hope for dear life. Let me paint you a picture here. It was a sleepless and stressful few days. Max's family, his father Jonah, his mother Dina, were taking rounds at the hospital with nothing to do but wait as their son Max lay hooked up to machines, not moving or speaking. They were praying for good news, any news, from his team of doctors. Rebecca stayed at home, taking care of anything and everything she could, helping and supporting Jonah. Jonah says he was worried about Rebecca being at the hospital. He didn't want to upset Max's mother, and he thought seeing the woman upon whose watch this horrific injury to this precious innocent child, her child, had happened, might very well trigger her. Rebecca's family offered their moral support as she too waited to hear news about the child. They said she loved him like her own. During this wait, in those long hours at the hospital, none of them knew that Max would die six days later. And certainly none of them knew that first, there would be another lifeless body found at the mansion. As Max clung to life in the hospital, the house bore witness to another tragedy inside. Another body tumbling over another banister. This grisly death was Rebecca's. Emergency, what are you reporting? Yeah, uh, I, I got a girl hung herself in the guest house of, uh, it's on Ocean Boulevard across from the hotel, same place that you came and got the kid yesterday. Okay, sir, what is the address? I'm not sure. Uh, 19, I'm in the back house. It's 1928-something. Uh, I'm not sure. Let me call you back. Okay, sir, is she yeah. still alive? I don't know. Okay. Uh, Two days after what would prove to be Max's fatal fall, the beautiful house had a beautiful dead woman hanging from the balcony. Rebecca's naked body dangled from a red rope like a flag in the breeze over the front upstairs balcony before she was cut down and lay in a crumpled heap on the green lawn below. 32-year-old Rebecca Zahal was found hanging nude and bound from a balcony in the mansion's courtyard. Zahal's nude body was found just days after her boyfriend's son took a fall at the home that would end his life. According to family members, Rebecca Zahal was watching over Max at the time. Zahal had been dating Jonah Shackney for at least two years. Police ruled Rebecca's shocking death a suicide. 
After all, a tragic accident had occurred on Rebecca's watch just days before. Police said that hours before she died, Rebecca listened to a voicemail Jonah had left, telling her Max was not going to survive. It only made sense that Rebecca might have blamed herself for Max's accident. She was the adult at home. She was the one in charge. She was the one responsible. It would make sense for Rebecca to feel like the fact that innocent little Max lay battered and potentially brain dead in a hospital because she wasn't watching. It would make sense for her to feel like it was all her fault. It would make sense that she had worried that her boyfriend, the love of her life, would never, ever forgive her for what had happened to his son. It would make sense that she might not have been able to live with the guilt. Any normal human being can relate. If you blamed yourself for a child being severely injured, I'm sure you can easily imagine how that might just be too painful to bear. And as I often say, when police are trying to figure out what happened, usually the simplest answer is the right one. Police could wrap this up, rule the suicide, close the book, and do so with sound logic. It does make sense. It is the simplest and most rational answer when you ask yourself, what is the most likely thing to have happened? But Rebecca's mother and sister Mary and Mary's husband Doug insist they believe this was murder and have dedicated themselves to fighting for justice. The San Diego Sheriff's Department got on TV and said, I have to accept the reality and face the fact that my sister committed suicide. Our office concluded that the cause of death was hanging and the manner of death was suicide. I do believe somebody's getting away with murder. I don't believe Becky's death is a suicide. I truly believe it's a murder. She shouldn't be dead. She should be here with us. My sister was a very positive person. She had positive influence on everybody. She did not deserve this. She would want us to find out the truth of what happened to her, yes. And she would do the same for me if it was the other way around. They say investigators didn't consider some major holes with the police's theory of suicide. First, Rebecca's sister Mary says Rebecca was obviously devastated about Max's fall. She says Rebecca loved Max, but seemed to accept that this was not her fault, that it was just a freak accident. Mary says Rebecca never once said she felt guilty or blamed herself. Rebecca and Mary were very close. Now, if Rebecca was feeling guilty enough to take her own life, Mary is sure her sister would have confided in her about it. She heard a loud noise and she came out of the bathroom to check what that noise was. Becky found Max on the floor. She told me that he was unconscious and she did CPR. She felt horrible. She said it was something that she couldn't have prevented, but she did not feel guilty about it. My sister was upset like any adult would be, you know, if there was a child injured. She was upset about it, but not upset to kill herself. And the funny part is, it was the only people that came up with that theory was Jonah Shacknai and uh, the sheriff's department. They all came to that conclusion that she was upset enough to kill herself, but they had no proof. Nobody could show me, and I, I even asked, I said, what makes you think that she was so upset? that she would kill herself. What do you have? And the only thing that they could say was that Jonah Shack and I called her 1250-ish in, in the middle of the night and left the message. The message that not a single person have heard. And nobody knows what that message says. Second, Rebecca told her sister she was remaining strong and Rebecca was making future plans. She actually talked about the next day fixing breakfast for Jonah and taking in change of clothes for him. And she asked me to tell mom that she would call her in the morning on her way to the hospital. The night before she died, Rebecca sent Mary a text. They were discussing the accident and Rebecca's next steps. Rebecca's message read, it's a nightmare. And partially, it's hard for me because I love him like my own. But he's not, and I need to be strong for Jonah. Mary says Rebecca wouldn't allow herself to break down and was determined to stay strong for Jonah. Mary says that was in line with Rebecca's character. She wasn't weak, and she wasn't going to give in to her pain even though she was feeling it. She was going to stand strong for Max's dad and insists Rebecca was certainly not speaking like someone about to end her own life. The Rebecca I know, she wants to be strong for people around her. She wants to be the person who uplifts the person who's down. 
and be supportive. And she had plans to help the family. And then when she was done helping, she was planning to come home. I said, you should come home and be here and take some time. And she said, let me help around for a few days, um, drive the families around, and I need to take clothes for Jonah, food for Jonah. Um, so when this, in a few days, I will get a hold of you and I will probably come home. She was a strong person. And if a situation was out of control for my sister, she would have packed up and left and came home or went to one of her friends. And she would not commit suicide. That I can bet my life on. That tells us a lot about Rebecca's mindset in her final hours. Suicide just doesn't come out of the blue. There are warning signs, such as giving things away, searching suicide online, or buying a gun or other means or method of killing oneself, talking about feeling hopeless, talking about feeling trapped or in unbearable pain, talking about being a burden to others, acting anxious or or agitated, behaving recklessly by exhibiting high-risk behaviors which indicate low regard for your own well-being and safety, withdrawing or isolating themselves, extreme mood swings, especially depression. None of those signs were observed or reported by anyone in Rebecca's family. Now, one of those really jumps out to me as I analyze this situation, because one of the most common things you hear from people that attempt to take their own lives is that they feel like a burden. They feel like people would be better off without them. But you hear Rebecca in her own words saying to her sister Mary, I can't give in. I have to take care of Jonah. I have to be strong for Jonah. She had assigned herself a job. She didn't see herself as a burden. She saw herself as a helper. She saw herself as having a future-oriented job. He is going to suffer greatly from the loss of this little boy if, in fact, he does die, and I've got to be there for him. I am his support system. I have a job here. That doesn't sound like someone that sees themselves as a burden. That doesn't sound like someone who feels people would be better without them in this world. That doesn't sound like someone who thinks this person would be better if they had two deaths to deal with instead of one. So from a psychological perspective, I just don't hear the mindset of someone that has decided to exit this life as a gift to those she loves. She did make a call to board the dog, but that can be easily explained. Who wouldn't want to make sure the dog is A, taken care of, and B, out of the way? When people are at the hospital, coming in and out, wanting to simplify things for everyone. Now third, Rebecca's family says she was religious. They say she believed suicide was a sin. But Jonah said Rebecca never went to church, and because of that, Rebecca's religion became a huge point of debate as her family searched for answers. And lastly, but maybe most importantly, you have to remember that when Rebecca was found dead, Max was still very much alive. And there was definitely still a chance that he would survive. Max's mother, Dina, said doctors were initially hopeful about Max's prognosis. Remember, as I said, with closed head injuries, you're not always sure the extent of the injuries. And the brain is a very resilient organ. Dina says at first she didn't even realize how serious Max's injuries were. She thought he might be out of the hospital and coming home in a week. Now, was that wishful thinking? Perhaps so, but it was the narrative at the time. It was the narrative that Rebecca was exposed to. Dina also said she and Jonah weren't blaming Rebecca for Max's fall. In fact, they were grateful to her at that point. Rebecca had quickly performed CPR on Max at the scene, which was part of the reason he was still alive. After Max was injured, Dina said Jonah told her, this is a quote, you should get down on your knees and thank Rebecca for saving Max's life. If this was the case, if there was at least hope that the boy was going to survive, let alone come home within a week, and the narrative was that she had taken a positive role in this tragedy rather than a negative role, why would Rebecca kill herself out of guilt? It just doesn't make sense. Maybe the child was going to be okay, and maybe she was going to be thanked for playing that positive role. Now, pause for a second right there. I want you to remember the exact line I just said. 
she might have been the one who saved him. That could be a clue. That could be an important key. She saved him. Can you save her? Was the cryptic message found painted on the door of the room where Rebecca allegedly killed herself? That message and Rebecca's bare footprint on the balcony were some of the only marks left behind, some of the only visual clues as to what happened in Rebecca's final moments. She saved him. Can you save her? Was Rebecca or someone else referring to Max? This may seem awfully simplistic, but go back to your fifth grade grammar lessons. She is a third-person pronoun. When someone says she... They're talking about someone else. People are talking about Rebecca as having saved Max. Why would Rebecca refer to herself in the third person two times? She and her. Remember, she saved him. Can you save her? If she's writing this, then she's referring to herself in the third person twice. She saved him. Can you save her? I had an uncle that worked as a homicide detective in Texas for over 40 years. Now, he did not originate this saying, but he sure hammered it home to me as a teenager when he said to me, Boy, when you commit a crime, there are a thousand ways to get caught. If you can think of 900 of them, you are a genius, and kid, you ain't no genius. How people describe events in and around a crime is often very telling. For example, if a husband is under suspicion about foul play regarding his missing spouse, and he refers to her in the past tense, such as, she liked to take walks, instead of, she likes taking walks, it is possible he slipped and spoke of her in the past tense because he knows she is dead. Is that what we're seeing here? Someone just didn't know about first, second, and third person pronouns. What is more likely? Rebecca was an artist and a painter. She was also described as incredibly neat and organized. Would she, on her exit from this world, even in a fit of grief and desperation, have painted those words in such a jagged, haphazard, and menacing scrawl? Would that have been the card she left behind? Was that consistent with her personality, consistent with her skill sets? Now, Rebecca's body did have traces of black paint on her hands, and her fingerprints were on that paint tube. But why on earth would Rebecca write those words? Well, her family's answer is she did not. On the door leading into the room where Becky was killed, it was in black paint, and it said, she saved him, can he save her? My sister writes everything very elaborately. So if she's going to leave a message, that is not going to be the message. So if Rebecca didn't write that message and she didn't commit suicide, which to be clear, to this day, police still say she did commit suicide, then what really happened to her? Rebecca's family believes that eerie message is the writing on the wall, if you will. And because of those words and a ton of other evidence, they are sure sure this was murder. I truly believe my sister was murdered. I think the chain of events started with the fall of Max. They don't know where the rope came from. There were two knives in the room. One knife had her fingerprint, but the other knife is clean of prints. The knife had to get there somehow. This is a staged homicide. There was a chair knocked over in the room. We all know, me more than anyone, that when you are grieving, there is a chance that you just do not want to believe a loved one could take their own life. The grief is too much to process and bear, and it's much easier to be angry, to focus on seeking justice and blaming an unknown killer than to accept that someone you loved was in so much pain, they thought there was no way out, and you didn't see it coming, and you didn't stop it. I have dealt with countless families who are not wanting to accept the death of a loved one was suicide. Now, why is that? You have to understand, if someone you love, someone you're close to, commits suicide, that says something about you. It says you were unsatisfactory. You were not sufficient to make them want to live. You failed in seeing it coming. You failed in getting them help. You failed in so many different ways. That's an admission on a family's part. 
that they failed their loved one, that they weren't there for them, that they didn't intervene, they didn't inspire, they didn't do what they needed to do to make their family member want to live or to stop them from doing what they did. And that's a hard thing to do, to say, I was such a bad mother, father, brother, sister, son, or daughter, that this person would rather be dead than be in this world with me. That is a hard thing for a grieving family member to accept. So it's very easy to understand why you look for someone else to blame, someone else to point your finger at. But I have to say, I'm not so afflicted. I look at this with some degree of objectivity. And in this particular case, I don't believe that this is just Rebecca's grieving family refusing to accept she would take her own life. I do believe there are legitimate questions here. You don't have to be a detective to see there are certainly enough unexplained clues for them to question what really happened the night Rebecca died. Evidence that you just don't see in an average run-of-the-mill suicide. I'm not saying all of it points to this was 1,000% a murderer who staged this as a suicide. And again, I want to be clear, no one has ever been charged. And as I said, Rebecca's death was officially ruled a suicide. And it remains that way to this day. But to Rebecca's family, the evidence was so glaring they could not believe investigators weren't seeing what they were. To them, it was as if somebody was shot twice in the head and police called it a suicide. My sister was brutally murdered. She tried to escape. And just the thought that she knew she was going to die breaks my heart. It just rips my heart out. Why would Rebecca gag herself with a T-shirt? How would she tie tight and intricate knots around her wrist and end up with her hands behind her back? What kind of contortionist would she have to be? And why would she bind her feet together? And why would she do all of this naked? She was a woman who, by all accounts, cared deeply about her appearance, who cared about her body. A woman who was healthy, in perfect shape, worked out daily. Why in death would she not care about how she looked? Why in death would she put herself on display? Why would she paint a mysterious clue on the wall instead of leaving her loved ones a note? A note of contrition, a note of explanation, a note of comfort. Everyone who spoke to her in her final days says Rebecca was sad, but was behaving normally. She would have had to have some kind of major breakdown to be running around naked, scribbling an ominous message on the wall, and then binding and gagging herself, putting a noose around her neck, and throwing herself out a window and over a balcony. And her family had just talked to her on the phone, and they say she was acting very appropriately for the circumstances. Her behavioral pattern leading up to this just does not add up. What she knew at the time was... The child was still alive, there was still hope, she was not being blamed, and she had assigned herself a job of being there with her significant other in the darkest hour of his life. That is forward thinking, that is hopeful thinking, that is the psychological antithesis of a suicidal mindset. An attorney hired by the family says, all signs point to foul play. And the knife police say Rebecca used to cut the rope that became her noose may hold evidence that points to someone else in that room with her the night she died. A knife of this type was found in the room, may have been used to cut the ropes. And in fact, the, another part that was unusual was her thumbprint was on it. And if you were going cut, to cut with a knife, you'd have your thumb on this side and you'd be cutting downward, right? But the thumb was on this side. You can't cut that way. You can't your leg right it comes it comes right off but if you put it behind your back that's how you cut as we continue to cover this story we will unravel what it could all mean we'll talk about all of the suspicious evidence that experts who have worked with rebecca's family believe points a finger at a cold-blooded killer Police investigators do not believe such a person exists and still consider the death a suicide and therefore have no suspects or persons of interest. We'll try to unravel the million-dollar question that remains unanswered to this day. If Rebecca didn't kill herself, then who was it that wanted her dead? 
Certainly one could understand how in such horrible pain Max's mom and dad may have fantasized about holding Rebecca accountable. Hell, anyone could understand a parent wanting revenge for their baby being hurt. But again, Max was still alive. There was still hope. A grieving parent wouldn't fly into a rage when there was still hope their child would be okay, and they never blamed her. They were sitting vigil at their son's bedside. They both had alibis, and let me tell you, psychologically, prayer and hope and sadness is inconsistent with blood-in-your-eye revenge. Those are just not compatible emotions, and as I say, we know where they were. After Max passed away, his mother Dina did begin to suspect his fall might not have been an accident. Her son wasn't a daredevil. He wouldn't have been zooming around the landing or swinging from the chandelier days before he died. He was the type of child who asked someone to hold his hand when he jumped on a trampoline. Max's mother said at one point a doctor at the hospital told her he may have been suffocated. In 2012, she asked for her son's death to be reinvestigated. The forensic pathologist she hired wrote, A more reasonable scenario would be that Maxfield was assaulted by another person at the hallway, near the banister of the second floor. Additionally, the pathologist said that Rebecca's claim that Max had said the word ocean the name of his dog right after his fall would have been impossible based on his injuries. If someone believed Rebecca killed Max, that is certainly motive for murder. But Dina has never outright accused Rebecca of harming her son, and Max's death has never been recategorized from accident to murder, and all of this came to light well after Rebecca's death. Now, you might still be thinking the child's fall and Rebecca's ultimate death has to somehow be connected. It's just too much of a coincidence to not be. But what if the two tragedies had absolutely nothing to do with each other? What if there was secret jealousy and anger, and because of the accident, everyone was distracted and an opportunity fell into place? Rebecca's family believes that may very well be the case. Why? Because on the night Rebecca Zahau died, Rebecca was not all alone at that house. In the final 24 hours of her life, an unexpected visitor arrived at the mansion. Someone who came to see the little boy was staying in the guest house on the night Rebecca died. He was the only other person known to be there that night. And this bizarre 911 call where he says, I got a girl, hung herself, same place you got the kid yesterday, had Rebecca's family questioning if he was just the man who cut her down or he was the one who put her there. Who is the mystery man in the guest house that made that chilling call? I'll tell you one thing. He wasn't a millionaire businessman like the mansion's owner, and the job he did have required him to have a very special skill. Tying knots. We'll tell you why Rebecca's family began to zero in on that man and believe wholeheartedly he was the one who attacked her. In our next episode, we'll dive further into the mysterious events that happened in the late night hours leading up to Rebecca's death. Reports of music blaring and an unexplained party allegedly happening behind the mansion's walls. And a woman's blood-curdling scream for help tearing through the dead of night. Suicide or murder? The police say suicide. The Zahau family passionately disagrees. What will you decide as we continue to unravel this case? That's on the next episode of Mansion of Secrets, The Mysterious Death of Rebecca Zahau. I'm Dr. Phil. Music